Job has been restored. His family and his friends, they now know the truth. His possessions have been returned and doubled. He has been granted 10 more children, seven sons and three daughters. And if you are reading the book of Job, and you get to chapter 42, and you just read through it, it can kind of feel like it's just there to close the book out. If you finish the book in chapter 41, you know, there's going to be like, uh, so what happened to Job? What, you know, so God answered, but what happened to Job? And so it feels like Job chapter 42 is just there to help quickly answer what happened to Job. Job came to see that God was sovereign over all. Job's friends were dealt with and realized that they were wrong. Job's family was restored to him. His possessions were restored to him. And he died after 140 years. And it can feel like, really, it's just there to help us close out the book and answer those questions. But I think, as we will see this morning, that some of the most significant theology in the book of Job is actually packed in these quick little verses. Now, I want to explain something that is significant, and that is that the book of Job is a book of poetry. And there are certain forms of poetry that we don't really use anymore, but an ancient style of poetry that was called prose. You spell that P-R-O-S-E, prose. Prose poetry is poetry that was written in a certain form. In fact, I can kind of read it to you, and you can, you'll, you'll see it here in the text. It starts in prose in verse 7, and Job chapters 1 and 2 are also in prose. It is, a, it is meant, even when it was written, granted it's translated to English, but even when it was written, it is meant to not rhyme. It has to do with a certain amount of syllables per line. After this, the Lord spoke these words to Job. The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your friends. It's a certain flow. You can read, I could do that through that whole passage. Now, here's what's significant this is why it matters. When poetry is used, it is almost always meant to communicate a theme. And there are some that know that this is prose that look at the book of Job and say Job might not even be real because generally when prose poetry is used, the characters are fictional because it's meant to communicate a theme. However, while that is true, it is not true that Job is not a real character and that these events are not real events. There are certain things about this poetry that make it very different than other forms of prose. For example... We have the actual names of Job's family. For example, it's telling us things that generally aren't part of the theme. How many years did he live before he died? The actual names of his daughters. Uh, Job is also mentioned several times in the Bible in other locations, and his name is mentioned alongside other men in the Bible that we know were also real characters. So Job is a real character, the event is a real event, the history is real history, but the method in which God chose to communicate it to us is this strange form of poetry that's called prose. And it teaches us that there is a theme that God's trying to teach us. 
the theme here in the end is exactly that, what happens in the end. For example, it's significant that everything that follows in Job's restoration, it follows these words. Job said, I had heard of you with my ears, but now my eyes have seen you. Notice all the blessing takes place after Job's eyes have seen God. The reality is the same is true for you and I. That generally speaking, the real blessing, the real reward for our faithfulness will happen after we see God. Now in Job's life, this was a, a, a real event. Job's story is Job's story. It's not all of ours. It's his. And God uses it to communicate something to us. And so when we look at Job, very important to understand that while it's true, that the Bible teaches us that Job's reward came back to him in this life, it is meant to point you and I to a reward that takes place after we come to see God, after we see him face to face. Another example of this, even though I am, as I've said, indisputably, I believe these are real events, notice that Job's fortunes were doubled. His children, notice his children were given back to him in the same number that they were lost. When you go look at Job chapter 1, Job had seven sons and three daughters. When you go here, he is given seven sons and three daughters. And so his possessions, which do end on earth, we don't take our possessions with us, were doubled. But our family does go. As David said when his son died, I can't go to, he can't come to me, but I will go to him. And so when God gave Job 10 more children, God doubled Job's portion. These are significant facts that, 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 that lead us to the right conclusion that there is some symbolism here. Even though these things are real, God's using them as symbolism to teach us that what lies ahead, the blessing that lies ahead for us, what happens in the end for the faithful of God is better than anything that could happen here on this earth. It's also significant that the book of Job, 42 chapters, God chooses to wait until the last seven or eight verses to say, Job got this, this, and this. When you look at the way the book is written, it opens up with an explanation of what's really happening in this world. We are in a spiritual battle. We are part of something much bigger than our earthly little lives. And then the great big chunk of the book is what? A man grappling with trying to understand the nature of God, trying to understand how to live for God, trying to understand what it means, all the suffering in this world, the almost the whole book of Job, 90% of it is about that. It's a picture of life. And then you get to the end, and the last eight, God waits to the last eight or nine verses, whatever it is there, the last eight verses, where he's like, here's what Job was restored, here's what he was given, and ultimately it was twice what he had, it was better than what he had. And so this morning, it's important that you understand when I talk about in the end, because that's we're in the end. That's, what, that's the lesson that God's teaching us of what to expect when it's all over. In the end for us is ultimately when we truly see God face to face and we have our reward in heaven. 
But there are some things that we could learn about what that's going to look like. What will happen in the end from these verses right here. So this morning, three blessed realities that will happen in the end for the sons and daughters of God. Number one, the first thing that we see is that truth will triumph. When you get to, let's just say you pick up Job in chapter 3. The one thing that's unfair for you and I is that we have Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so we know what's going on in the book of Job. But remember, Job didn't know what was going on. Job's wife didn't know what was going on. Job's friends didn't know what was going on. And so the whole book from chapter 3 is this record of these conversations. And it's like they don't know what the truth is. Job knows he didn't do anything wrong, but even Job doesn't understand why he's suffering like he is. His friends think that Job has done something wrong. They're trying to convince Job the reason you're going through what you're going through is because you're not right with God. He's saying, I don't know what y'all are talking about. And this, the, the truth is not known. What is really going on? Job doesn't understand yet that what's taken place with Satan and the conversation between him and God. He's not 100% certain yet what God thinks about the situation because God hasn't spoken yet. God hasn't made it clear to Job. But in the end, God speaks. It all comes out and the truth is known and the truth will triumph. All the lies and confusion of Satan will be utterly destroyed. And for those of us that have spent our lives living faithfully for God, to be mocked, to be told all these things to get us to question our faith, to try to get us to question our commitment to God, some of the things that we've been accused of that are just totally false, in the end, the truth will always win. The truth will triumph. And that should give us a sense of peace to know we do not have to. You know, we, we, we don't have to... to uh, we don't have to make this happen. God will make it happen in God's time. Our job is to stand for what is true, to follow what is true, to live for what is true, to herald what is true. But even as we do, you're going to find people are going to question it. People are going to question our integrity. People are going to question the church. They're going to question our God. They're going to question the Word of God. They're going to question it all. But in the end, the truth will come out. It always does. God's people will be vindicated. I think in the end we'll realize that God was closer than we ever knew. We knew what was going on. It helps to know, like, if you're reading the book of Job, it helps to know what's going on. We knew God was there. We knew God was pulling for Job. We knew what God believed about Job the whole time. Job didn't actually realize just how near God was. Job didn't actually realize how close God was to the situation. Job didn't actually realize how God's hand was on it all. He didn't know. Instead, he had to walk by faith. And I'm telling you something, folks. I do believe with all of my heart that when we get to heaven, while it's true, it won't matter what happened on earth. When we get there, we will know the truth. And I think one of the things that we will be blessed by is to know how near God was in times we didn't actually know. How much more involved He was in our lives than we had any earthly idea. He was there. He was guiding. His hand was with us the whole way. And we had no idea just how near He was. Consider how God brings out the truth with Job's friends. 
It's amazing to me because we can just read over these verses, right? You, you, you read the verse, you read them with me, that uh, God tells Job that he's not pleased with Job's friends, tells Job's friends to get a sacrifice, sacrifice it, and then have Job pray on their behalf, and God will forgive them. Job does it, story goes on. But just think about something for a moment. Think about this. Earlier in the book of Job, Job prays or verbalizes that he wishes there was a mediator who could talk to God on his behalf. His friends are piling it on. Job, you deserve judgment. Job, you've done wrong. And Job's like, I wish there was somebody who, you know, apparently God's not going to answer me, but I wish there was somebody that I could talk with that could talk to God on my behalf. It's a picture that points forward to Jesus as the mediator between man and God. But notice that what actually happens in the end, Job becomes the mediator for his friends. These friends who are like, you're guilty and you need help, they find out, nope, you're guilty and you need help. And the one who's going to help you is Job, the one who you thought was unworthy. The one who you said was lucky that he wasn't getting more because he wasn't even getting what he deserved. Notice, God also shows these these, uh, three friends of Job's a little something about God's character because they believed Job deserved judgment. They believed that everything that was happening was God's judgment and that Job deserved more of it. And now all of a sudden, guess what? They deserve judgment. But instead of judgment, God says, I'm going to give you grace and mercy. The very thing you didn't think Job deserved, that's what you're going to get. And you know how you're going to get it? Job's going to mediate on your behalf. And I'm going to answer his prayer, and I'm going to give you guys mercy and grace. Nobody can vindicate a person like God can. I mean, I look at how this finished up with Job's friends, and I see that God was just like, I mean, in the way that he did it, in such a short and brief and clear way, I'm like, this guy, this guy, God, I don't want to call him a guy, but God, God knows how to vindicate his sons and daughters. And I'm going to tell you something, folks, that should give us some comfort to know that our God, in the end, He's going to make it all right. The truth is going to come out. He will vindicate his sons and daughters. The truth will triumph. In Luke 8, 17, it says, Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known or that will not be known and come to light. In the end, everyone knew the truth. Satan came to know the truth. Job was exactly who God said that he was. Job eventually came to know the truth. Job's friends came to know the truth. Job's family came to know the truth. The world knows the truth. We know the truth. The whole world has it written down for us. We all know the end of Job's story. And so will it be in the end for all of us. The truth will come forth. This world might be crazy. It might be full of lies. It might be governed by liars. But in the end, bless God, the truth will triumph. This is a blessed and welcomed reality 
for the church. I mean, for the faithful of God, this is a blessed reality. It is a nightmare for the rest of the world. For those who live in lies, for those who believe lies, for those who are ruled by lies, for liars themselves, this is actually a nightmare. But for those of us who are the redeemed of God, this is a blessed reality that in the end the truth will triumph. Number two, the next thing that we see is that in the end, our suffering will cease. This is a clear message in the account of Job's life that eventually our suffering comes to end. Thank God for that. Now, it should be noted that in Job's life, his earthly suffering relents, and he begins to rebuild, right? So, but Job's life is a picture for us about what life in general is for the rest of us. We aren't guaranteed that, you know, we're all going to get everything back here in this life, but in the end, our suffering does cease. There does come a moment in the end when our suffering comes to an end. And there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no sickness, there's no death. What a day that's going to be. No more struggling. Look what Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4 says about it. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is Revelation 21. It's literally one chapter before the last chapter of the entire Bible. It is there for us to remind us that one of the glorious things that happens for the saints of God in the end is that our suffering will cease and we will not, there will be no more pain or sorrow. What a day that's going to be. I want to go on a tiny rabbit trail and come back to no suffering. It's an interesting study. If you take a look at the biblical record, the biblical account, that most people who were mature in their faith are never recorded being healed. There's no record of the disciples being healed. There's no record of the Apostle Paul being healed. In fact, we have other records. We have the record, historically, that nearly all of the disciples died very tragic deaths. We have the record of the Apostle Paul saying to the church in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 2, in this Galatians chapter 2 that he was so sick that he couldn't travel, that he wanted to go on further but he was so sick he couldn't travel. More than likely, something was messed up with his eyes because he said, I testify, you all would have plucked out your eyes and gave them to me if you could have. That's a pretty fair indicator that probably whatever was wrong with them was related to his eyes. We see Paul telling Timothy, 
another mature elder in the faith, a disciple of Paul, but telling Timothy how to handle an issue that he had not received healing for. We see Paul speaking about somebody that was traveling in his group of people who was so sick, he almost died, and they had written, they had time, literally, to write letters to people and send out letters or send out the word that brother so-and-so is sick. He eventually healed naturally, and Paul thanks God for it. He gives God the credit for the natural healing, but he wasn't healed supernaturally. You will find that those who were healed were generally people who were either new believers or non-believers. It was generally in situations where the healing would demonstrate to this particular person that God sees you, God knows who you are, God loves you, God is here, God is powerful, God is present, healing would occur, and very often the same event would be used to step up and preach and proclaim the gospel. I would argue that healing is still necessary in that capacity today. Clearly we see biblically that healing did occur. But it's a very interesting study. It's a very interesting concept when you think about the reality that we do not have a record of people being healed twice and that we do not have record of God's supernaturally healing all of his mature elders and leaders of the church so that they were just healthy through their whole life. And when you understand everything that we've been through this last month as we've studied the book of Job, it actually makes a lot of sense. And once God has, in fact, made himself known to us and God has demonstrated to us who he is, and we know that he is good, we know that he is God, we know that he is sovereign, we realize there's actually no greater platform than the platform of suffering to demonstrate that he is worthy of our worship and praise simply because he's God, not because of anything that he gives us. Satan could say of all of us the exact same thing he said of Job. If God just healed every little thing that we ever dealt with, we never had pain, we never had sorrow, we never had suffering. If God just healed all of that, Satan could say the same thing that he said of Job. Well, of course they love you, God. You never, ever, ever, ever let them go through anything hard. And so the disciples and the saints of God who followed them and the fathers of our faith most of them shed their blood for preaching the gospel. Paul said, and I'm not, Paul said basically this. I couldn't quote it word for word. But Paul said, I know what it is to nearly be beaten to death a couple times. I've been shipwrecked. I've been through it all. I know what it is to be hungry. I know what it is to be poor. I, I know what it is to be hated. I know what it is to be imprisoned. I know. And then he said, and I can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives me strength. You might be shocked to know that verse was not about American football. It's about enduring the hardest moments of life because we can through Christ. That's what it's about. 
And so the glory thing for the glorious thing for these disciples, the glorious thing for Apostle Paul, the glorious thing for these martyrs was not that God was going to restore their fortunes tenfold or fourfold or give them a mansion up on a hill here on earth. The glorious thing for them was that their reward lied ahead of them and there was coming a day in the end when they saw God face to face that their suffering would cease. What an awesome thought for the sons and daughters of God, folks. Our suffering will cease. There will come a day when there's no pain, no sorrow, no crying, no death. I thought about this particular, the, no death. I thought about this. It's a privilege, but it's also one of the harder things to do as a pastor is to do funerals. And one of, the, one of the most difficult funerals I've ever did. I did a funeral for a baby that died in a drive-by shooting. And it was, a, it was, it was awful. And there was, a, there was a little casket about this big of a baby that was dead because of the sins of others. And it was probably one of the most difficult funerals I've ever done. And then I was thinking on this verse, you know, it's a privilege that I get to do what I do. I, I, I thank God for the calling on my life, but I, I get to see death. I get to be there with people as they mourn death, and I have the privilege and the awful responsibility at times of standing over caskets of people that shouldn't, shouldn't have to have been there, and I realize death comes for everybody. It is no respecter of persons. It does not matter if you're, you're a child. It does not matter if you're old or anywhere in between. Death comes for all of us. And I, 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 this, I was just meditating on, on, like, me. It's one of the things Joplin Emerson is grateful for. I will never stand over another casket when that day happens. Man, that's awesome. I'll never have to sit with people that are mourning in, 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 in pain and in sorrow because of lost loved ones. This is going to happen in the end, folks. For those of us who are redeemed. For those of us who are the faithful sons and daughters of God, there's coming a day when we will struggle no more. Imagine it. And number three, finally this morning, another obvious conclusion in the study of Job is that in the end, our faithfulness will be rewarded. Now consider for a moment that that's different. That's different from there will be no more suffering. It is awesome that there will be no more suffering. Awesome. It is an amazing... We've, we were born into suffering. Like we, don't, we don't actually know any other world. None of us know another world where suffering does not exist. We were born into it. We cannot understand and fathom what it's going to be like in a world without it. But in addition to that, we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. As I mentioned in the intro, his possessions doubled and his children doubled, considering that he still had his children in heaven. It's a clear picture. It's, it's a theme meant to communicate that what lies ahead for us is greater than anything that we have here. And our faithfulness to God, it does matter. It will be rewarded. And we as God's people, folks, we must, we must 
get our eyes and our hearts fixed on heaven because that is our home. This is not our home. It was never, ever meant to be our home. In fact, the Bible uses the word pilgrims to describe us. A pilgrim is somebody who does not have a permanent residence in a place. A pilgrim is someone who's just passing through. The Bible says that we, as the sons and daughters of God, we're just pilgrims in this place. Our citizenship, the Bible says, is in a heavenly city. And one of the major problems for us as as a church these days, one of the major problems for Christians is that we focus on our earthly life. And we think, you know, if I'm faithful to God, that's going to guarantee a certain degree of, you know, blessing in this earthly life. That's not true. Not earthly blessings, not earthly wealth, not earthly health. There's no guarantee to that. The blessings that we have are spiritual. Knowing that God is with us through the hard times, yes, I will argue that's a blessing. But it's a spiritual blessing. It doesn't mean that he removes the hard times. It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God did not spare them from the fire. They went through the fire. But he was with them in it. He protected them through it. So it is with us as we are pilgrims going through this world. Like God's not going to protect us from the world. We're going to be in it. We're just not of it. And we're going to experience it. We're going to experience pain and sorrow while we're here. And here's why this matters. If all you do is look at your earthly life and you think that somehow your spiritual worship to God means that God's going to make your earthly life always better and you're going to be healthy and wealthy and you're never going to struggle and you're never going to go through heartache, number one, you're wrong. It's going to be a miserable existence. But number two, if you get deceived into that mindset, trust me, your faith won't make sense to you. You'll be like, well, why do it? Why be faithful to God if everybody's going to hate me? Why be faithful to God if I'm just going to get sick like everybody else? Why be faithful to God if I'm just going to die like everybody else? Why be faithful to God if I'm going to just experience the pain of the world like everybody else in the world? Well, I'll tell you why to be faithful to God. you got to get your eyes on heaven. And there are people who will say, well, well, that's a silly reason to serve God. I saw an illustration many years ago that helped change my, it was a visual that was so helpful for me in this area of why it's actually important. I believe it was Francis Chan, and he had a, he had a, a ball of yarn that was a couple hundred feet long, and he rolled this ball of yarn out, and it went through the congregation in a big S until it ran out of yarn. And so you just had hundreds of feet of white yarn, and everybody's holding it. And the end of one piece of that yarn, he was holding on the stage. And there was this little tiny, like, half-inch piece of the yarn that was red. He said, your earthly life represents this red section of the yarn. And everything that is white represents what will happen the moment you die. And most people foolishly live for this tiny little speck of years that the Bible says is like a breath. It's like a vapor. And they neglect to prepare for what is to come. Now visually, visually, if you understand, you can see eternities beyond our ability to fathom. This particular life is like a breath. 
Here's the way it works for the sons and daughters of God. We have difficulty in this tiny little span of our existence. We suffer at times. We go through difficulty. Our reward is not in this life. But when we meet God and we see Him face to face, the rest of eternity, we are blessed. We are blessed beyond measure. We're in a place that is so great our minds can't fathom. We are rewarded for our faithfulness. Everybody else is the other way around. In this tiny little sliver of their existence, their only reward is in this life. They live for themselves. They get everything they can get. They fight, steal, beg, lie, whatever it takes to, to, to make this little life of theirs as great as it can be. But their reward is in this little life. And then the moment that they see God face to face, the rest of their life is what the Word of God calls an eternity in hell. Folks, we must, we must have our eyes on heaven because that is where our reward is. That is where our promise is. And we will be rewarded for our faithfulness. An interesting note in the book of Job that also shows us the theme, right, of the poetry here. It tells us that Job's daughters uh, received an inheritance. So daughters didn't receive inheritances. In fact, in the law, in the book of Numbers, only sons received inheritances. It was part of the law. Now, it's not necessarily because daughters weren't treated fairly, but daughters married men, and so those men would have an inheritance. So like, you know, it didn't make sense for a family to end up with two inheritances. The inheritances always went to the men. That said, isn't it really interesting that in the book of Job, it says specifically, it took time to clarify for us that of all the people that Job's daughters, they're the only ones mentioned by name. His sons are not mentioned by name. They are mentioned by name. They are told that they're the most beautiful in the land and they receive the inheritance of the father. What God is communicating is this theme that all of his children, sons and daughters alike, will be blessed in the hereafter. That what comes in the end, ladies, my blessing isn't any better than yours. The home that Jesus is building for me is not any better than yours. That God has got an inheritance for every single one of his sons and daughters, that your faith is unique to you, that your reward is unique to you, that God's not just going to reward the men or 70%. God's going to reward every single one of his sons and daughters. You ladies have an inheritance just like I have an inheritance. There is a reward for our faithfulness. I wanted to close this particular sermon series reading some of the last verses of the Bible. Job chapter 42, the last chapter of Job, it points us to what happens in the end. Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22, the last three chapters of Revelation, they also point us to what's going to happen in the end. And this morning, I just want us to look at it together. I'm going to close out reading these verses and just kind of comment on them. Let's start in Revelation chapter 20. If you have your Bibles and you want to read them with me, it's easy to get there. Last book of the Bible. Go to the last chapter. Flick 
flip back a couple to chapter 20 and verse 12. Man, consider what we're going to be rewarded with in the end, brothers and sisters. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And I tell you, it's an important thing this morning that you know that your book, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. There's nothing that matters more than having your name written in the book of life. Before I'm done today, I will tell you how you can know your name is in the book. But it matters that your name is in that book. Paul goes on to say in chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw that holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We are that bride. The church, folks. We are that bride. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a day when all things will be made new. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. This is a, the thirsty here is a reference to the things we thirst for. Could you imagine? I, I thirst for the day when I don't fight my flesh nature anymore. I thirst for the day when it's not a struggle and I don't have to say no to the flesh. I thirst for the day when I don't have to battle a world that hates God anymore, when I don't have to battle an enemy anymore, when I don't have to worry that there's somebody out there that wants to steal kill and destroy and I need to keep myself safe and I need to help keep others safe I long for the day when I don't have to stand as the watchman on the top of a tower looking for the enemy so that I can warn people when he's on the way I thirst for that day and I don't know what you thirst for but we all thirst for something and according to the word of God for those of us that are redeemed the day's coming when we get there when every Thirst that we have will be quenched by the water of life. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. John gets a 
future picture of the church in heaven. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So where we're going, brothers and sisters, the glory of God is going to radiate in light in such a way that it's going to light the whole place up. This place in verse 12 had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, and on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. So get a picture of how big it is, and then we're going to see what it's made out of. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. What we begin to see now is that the general material that is used there are the things we see as precious here. When I'm measuring out a wall, I actually used to be a contractor. I use a tape measure. Here, they're using a measuring rod of gold. It insinuates that what we think is important here will have such insignificance there, you can't even imagine how great it is. Let's go down for sake of time to verse 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite. He goes on and names these uh, jewels. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Just try to picture it, and here's what I want you to see. The stuff that we currently use to form our buildings, concrete walls, bricks, stucco, the stuff that we use to form our streets, asphalt, concrete, the stuff that we use to form our gates, iron. In heaven, they're using gold, they're using jewels, there's a pearl. It's hard to understand a pearl that large. There's a pearl, pearls that were used so large to make gates out of. The clear insinuation is that the greatest and most extravagant things that we can think of here on earth are so valueless there, they are used for building materials. That's how great that place is going to be. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be gorgeous. But listen, folks, we don't take gold and pave streets with it. We don't take billions and trillions of dollars of jewels and tape them to the walls so the walls look nice. But this is the, what heaven is made out of. It is a place so beyond our ability to understand we are going to be rewarded for our faithfulness. Let's close up with verses 22 to 27. I'll ask our worship team if you guys will come. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. There's not going to be churches there because the whole place is church. The whole place, it's just the saints of God everywhere you go, folks. It's the church. 
And the city has no need of sun. Listen, it has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gate will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. I love this verse. There will be no night there. It's hard to wrap our little minds around. But because there is no night there, that means we all get there on the same day. Doesn't feel that way here on earth when your lost loved ones have gone on before you. But folks, we all get there on the same day. There's only one continual eternal day there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I conclude this morning, Christian, hold on to your hope. Fight the good fight. Run the race. Endure hardship, as Paul said, like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But as Paul also said, it's because we count the suffering of this present world as nothing compared to the glory that waits ahead for us. Guard your heart with all diligence. And to the lost, if you're here this morning and you're not saved, listen, the end is coming for you. It's inevitable. Nobody escapes it. The question is, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? I told you I'd answer the question. How does your name get written in the book? Even as a preacher who's been doing this for 20 years, there's certain things that my mind has a hard time wrapping around, but I'm going to explain it the best I can. The Bible teaches us that when we come to sincerely see that we are sinners, we have sinned against God, and we truly see there's nothing I can do about it. It's done. I can't go back. I can't fix it. I can't undo it. I stand guilty before God, guilty of crimes against God, guilty of anarchy against His law. I am desperately doomed in front of God. I see it, and I'm honest about it, and I'm true with myself about who I am. I then turn, and I look to Jesus, and I realize that's why He came. Because there had to be a punishment for what I've done. Jesus paid that. His blood was shed. When I should have died for what I did, He died for what I did. And so when I put my faith in Jesus, what that means is I put my faith that His payment on the cross is accepted as payment for my sins. And I believe in Christ for that. And the only other piece... The only other command is repent. It's asked in Acts chapter 2, what must I do to be saved? The very first word answered, repent. That means turn away from living for yourself, turn away from your sins and follow God. This morning, when you see yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior, and you cry out to God and you say, God, please forgive me of my sins. I believe in Jesus. I believe in His death. And you make that conscious decision in your heart to turn from your wicked ways and follow God. I don't know how it happens, 
But God's hand begins to move on that Lamb's book of life. The pen is there and your name gets written down. And He takes His Spirit and He puts it inside of you. And He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new nature. He changes it all. It's what the Word of God calls being born again. This morning, if you're here and you've never done that, I plead with you. When we begin to worship, I plead with you. Would you, would you please, would you come? Would you make your way out of your aisle? Would you find a place to kneel and just get real with God and confess your sins to God and repent of your sins and be saved today? And for the child of God, I don't know about you, but I feel like we got something to worship about this morning. Let's get our focus on heaven. Let's remember this life is but a breath. Let's look at the suffering that we endure as as a stage, as a platform to bring God honor and glory because he's worthy of worship no matter what we go through. Let's be willing to enter into what Paul called the fellowship of suffering. There are certain things that are only forged through suffering. There's a certain part of maturity, of mature Christian faith that is only developed as we endure hardship. But as we endure it, we know more about God. We know more about who He is. We understand His character. We become stronger. We become better. We become uh, more conscious of who we are in Christ. As Paul would say, I can go through it all because through it all, Christ is with me.